It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's best sellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Thursday morning, the 3rd of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The official line from the Russian government is that Russia is not invading Ukraine. Let me repeat it once again that the special military operation conducted by the Russian armed forces does not have the goal of occupying Ukraine or harming the local population. Demilitarizing the country which is crammed with NATO weaponry is aimed at protecting the long-suffering people in Donbass and Ukraine. The special operation conducted by Russia does not impact critical civilian infrastructure. That was VSL Nebenzia, the Russian ambassador to the UN Security Council, speaking on Monday through an interpreter. On Tuesday, the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, appealed through an interpreter to MEPs in Brussels for their help in combating the Russian invasion. We are fighting just for our land and for our freedom despite the fact that all large cities of our country are now blocked. Nobody is going to enter and intervene with our freedom and country. And believe you me, every square of today, no matter what it's called, is going to be called, as today, Freedom Square in every city of our country. Nobody is going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. All but 13 MEPs voted in favour of the resolution against the Russian aggression. Irish members Claire Daly and Mick Wallace say they voted against Russian aggression and its invasion of Ukraine. But Mick Wallace explained to South East Radio, however, why they couldn't support the resolution. One of the things that we voted against was reiterates that NATO is the foundation of collective defence for the member states who are NATO allies. Now, and welcomes the unity between the EU and NATO... Listen, we're anti-war. NATO has nothing to do with peace. Okay. It's to do with war. We're pro-peace. We're anti-war. And we've condemned in the strongest terms Russia's uh, military efforts because it's wrong. What Russia has done is wrong and we have condemned it from the very start. This is also calling for flooding Ukraine with arms. That is absolute right. madness. Yeah. Now, I mean, this will be a disaster if the EU gets them. Inf- that's involved in flooding Ukraine with arms. 
we're praying for a fucking ceasefire. Others are glad to see that, that right. there's a war going on. That's McMullis speaking to South East Radio. Now let's speak uh, to one of our local MEPs, Luke Ming Flanagan, an independent MEP for the Midlands Northwest region. Very good morning to you, Luke, and thank you for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. You're part of uh, that same left-wing group in the European Parliament, uh, as is Mick Wallace and Claire Daly. Uh, and indeed, you voted in line with that perspective on the 16th of December, uh, but you've come around to a different way of thinking and you supported the resolution this week. Why so? I supported the resolution this week because even though I wouldn't agree with everything that was said in it, and I would have liked more stuff in it in relation to tackling uh, Russian oligarchs' money in this country, I thought it was important very, very important to send out a very, very clear signal that we condemn uh, what Vladimir Putin is doing, uh, not so much Russia, because it's basically all led by Vladimir Putin and his madness. And every vote that I take, and always I think like this, I look at it from the perspective of, do I think it'll improve things? Do I think it'll make things worse? And that's the reason why I vote the way I do. Did you vote to strengthen NATO? December, um, knowing what I do now, I would have supported that in December. But uh, no more than many organisations and many people, people were reluctant. Likewise with NATO, likewise with the United States of America. And uh, the reality is that we are faced with two awful truths here. And one truth is that Putin is raging a crazy war against Ukraine. He's killing large numbers of citizens, and it looks like it's going to get worse. But the other awful truth at the same time is that Putin can start a nuclear war if NATO put a foot on Ukrainian ground. And that is the position of NATO, and that is the position of Joe Biden. And uh, caution has to be what we look at, even though, obviously, we've got to do something, we've got to do something now. But we're dealing with a man here who is working on insane emotion. What we've got to do is be cool, we've got to stop, we've got to think about what we've got to do. I'll give you an example. This is the first interview I have done on this since the whole thing kicked off. And it isn't because I'm afraid to speak about it, or it isn't because I'm trying to run away from anything. It's because you need to think carefully about what we're doing here. And my opinion, when they first went in, um, wasn't evolved. It has evolved somewhat now. And basically, we need to take this situation massively serious. What I think we need to do for the Ukrainian people, rather than offering them EU membership now, I think they should become EU members. But what I think we should do with immediate effect is let every Ukrainian passport holder that wants to come to the EU come here with the rights of EU citizens, freedom of movement, labour, education and social welfare, etc. And then when the chaos, if it dies down, then deal with the accession process. Do it right, do it with due diligence, but give them all the benefits now without actually, in a sense, saying to them, I'll pull you up off the cliff if you sign this piece of paper. We need to do something concrete now. And for me, for the citizens that want to flee, we've got to allow them to come here without any obstacles. And my, like, you mm. go, 
Well, what, what, what can I, what can, my, I myself I was going, what concrete can I do? Yeah, I can vote this way and I can vote that way. But one concrete thing I can do is look at what that would mean in numbers terms to Ireland. And I hear figures of we have to take 20,000 for every million. As far as I can see, it's around 11,000. If 5 million people try to leave Ukraine, which is highly likely, that means Ireland will have to take 60, 55,000 people. So what we need to do now, rather than browbeat each other over what we could do in the past, we need to work out how we can accommodate that. Now, I'm not browbeating you over what you did or didn't do in the past, but I, I think it is interesting to see how your view has evolved and how I think you were agreeing, and correct me if I'm wrong, with that position that Mick Wallace expressed a moment ago, that whilst he supports the idea of um, rejecting the aggression, the invasion, the incursion of Ukraine, he does not support the idea of strengthening NATO or or giving power to Europe to form an army. I was speaking to Jim Roach of the Irish anti-war movement yesterday and I was asking him uh, uh, if there comes a time at times where you've got the choice between surrender or, or fight and if we're at that situation, uh, in that situation now, do you believe we are? Well, uh, I, it's, it, it, for anyone to make a prediction on this uh, would be a fool's errand because anyone who made predictions on it before, bar uh, Gary Kasparov in his book, they got them wrong. And uh, when you say a similar position to what Mick Wallace had, well, I haven't actually, because at the moment, and what some of the things I voted for in that resolution, I would never have voted for before. That's what I mean. I voted for. It's a fact. Yeah, but that's what I mean. I'm I'm, founding foundation stone. I'm not taking an issue with you for your thoughts. I'm talking about how your thoughts have uh, evolved, and that you wouldn't have voted this way before, but now you are, uh, because we're in. A situation nobody ever thought we would be in. I mean, war on this continent should not have happened uh, since the 1940s. We relegated it to history or so we thought. Yeah, well, look, not to be picky now, but uh, the people in Yugoslavia will tell you clearly there was a war. So we have had a war, but we haven't had uh, one like this. And so the situation has changed. And some people would say we should provide weapons. Ireland should provide weapons. Let, let's have a look at the significance of us doing that. Like, impact-wise, what impact would it have? It would be negligible. Whereas I believe we could achieve more by putting more, the equivalent of that, in financial terms, and more into humanitarian aid, and doing something that Ireland has been really, really good at down through the decades. While at the same time, and this is where my position has changed, I support Sweden, I support Finland's right to join up with because if I was on that border, I would be thinking different to where I am now living in Ireland. So my position has, has changed on that. But I think it needs to be clear as well. The resolution that was voted for in December didn't stop Vladimir Putin. And if absolutely everyone in the European Parliament voted for it, it would not have stopped him. Well, 548 did and 69 against. that will stop him. Mm. And what will stop him in one way is to, excuse my language, cut his financial throat. And to deal with all of the money that's swilling around, around the world, uh, connected to him. And in particular, in the IFSC. And in that resolution, I, there was 
a few disappointments, but I was happy to vote for it in the end. But there was one very particular disappointment, and that was an amendment that was voted down, which would have rooted out the oligarchs and how they hide their money within the EU and within tax havens. Ireland was declared a tax haven in a vote by the European Parliament. But unfortunately, that vote was not supported. All Fine Gael MEPs, and I'm not trying to have a go at them, but they need to change their Mm. view on this. They all voted against that amendment. It only failed by 20 votes. But unfortunately, in the final text now of the resolution, we haven't seriously called to root out the money of people like Roman Abramovich, etc., who got it through the death of people, and it's blood money. And if we're serious about this, people like me have to change their attitude, which I have, and I have learned. But other people, and I'll say it again, it's not an attempt to have a go. It is a frustrated call to say we need to change because even like people talk about last December Mm. and was there not warning signs there was clearly warning signs there now looking back with Crimea that is eight years ago In the meantime, we have taken tens of billions of euro into our banking system mm. and didn't give toppings for Ukraine. Because and if cri- we cri- did, Crimea now we used... wouldn't have done that. So we need to mm. change that, uh, and I don't think anyone can disagree with uh, that. And Crimea now used that as a, a launching pad uh, for part of uh, this invasion. I thought that the but, sanctions would have... Why wasn't that worth fighting for at the time? Well, that's a good question. That's a good question. I, I, I thought, and forgive me for thinking incorrectly, that... The sanctions would have impacted on uh, the Russian oligarchs and the IFSC. Uh, I'm reading in the papers uh, that uh, a Ukrainian delegation uh, attended uh, the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party meeting last night and they're complaining about a Russian-owned plant in Limerick which is not impacted by sanctions. Uh, but when it comes to NATO... I'm aware of it, yes. OK, do you want to uh, add to what uh, their concerns are? Well, in all of these things, people have to make a call between having less money around or standing up for Ukraine. And we have to bite the bullet here, pardon the awful yeah. pun. And we have to decide, okay, if this company, Ahanish, if they are involved and connected with Russian money, no matter what the consequences close, are, close that we down. need to deal with it. Close that down yeah. and the jobs with it. And... and Look, at the end of the day, if you had a choice, I have three kids. Yeah. If you had a choice between their lives and jobs, you'd make a choice with them. Fair I'm enough. Sorry, but my, I think it's fair enough. Is, but I think it's important to spell that out. Um, and oh you, yeah. you, you, talk, you well, talked most, about the membership definitely. of. You talked about supporting countries joining NATO. Would you support the idea of Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and the Ukraine joining NATO? I wouldn't stand in their way. That's up to themselves. And that's the way I voted. Previously, I would have said, that's not a good idea. But I cannot, in the comfort of my office in Castlereagh, with the sun shining in the window on me, and my kids happily in school, I cannot make that call for other people. Because, to be quite honest, uh, it's very, that's an awful easy thing for me to do. But uh, they're the ones who are going to have to face the consequences. But I think... Rather, obviously, we've got to do something immediately. Obviously, we've got to help. But we've also got to start thinking more long term because we didn't previously think long term about the sustainability of, let's say, the food systems in the European Union or energy systems in the European Union. 
And we need now immediately to start taking this seriously. Obviously, it would be better if we did it before. But we have to look at the fact that I heard Leo Varadkar say and that is not true. No. Mm. The reality is that on, according to the Central Statistics Office, and there's information in there in the Department of Agriculture, in the last 10 years, there was one year in Ireland where Ireland imported the food calorie equivalent of two and a half million people. In other words, we were short the calories for two and a half million people. That the amount of calories we imported versus what we exported. We don't produce enough potatoes, carrots, onions, sugar, flour. I could yeah, go on. And we need we need we need we need fertilizer to grow. We need fertilizer to grow them. Twenty percent of our fertilizer comes from Russia. All of this gets very complicated as it goes on. Looks like it's going to go on for a very long time. Well, ta- ta- Fortunately, there is a policy within the new common agricultural policy which will help. And uh, Commissioner Wojciechowski, in fairness to him, he's been excellent. He's pushing for 25% of uh, farms in the European Union to become organic. I think that figure needs to be accelerated. And I think in Ireland we need to look at the sustainability of our beef systems, look at how sustainable is it to keep on importing grain versus sticking and standing by the extensive farmers who okay. have virtually no inputs, very low fertiliser levels. But this and we the, need this, to look uh, at uh, how we produce our of food course, uh, and, and we need to change. Uh, and especially so in the context of the war and the sanctions and in the context of uh, the war and the sanctions. Do you believe, Luke Mink-Flanagan, that if Ireland is sending helmets to soldiers who are at war or blood for the war injured, that this is a neutral country? Yeah, I think I, I think in this case uh, it's quite clear uh, who's uh, the aggressor here, and uh, I couldn't, in clear conscience, not send them blood and not send them help. But I think we should do it in a way that benefits them the most, and in the end leaves Ireland in a position where we get listened to when we put forward uh, solutions. But okay, but we're I, involved in the war, so does that make us, or uh, can you continue to think that we're a new? country. Leo Radker reported this morning to saying, uh, to, to have said last night, I think we'll need to think uh, about deeper involvement in European defence. Well, look, at the moment we are neutral. I think providing helmets and I think providing blood uh, doesn't, obviously it's a very fine line, but on that fine line I'd fall down on the side of we provide uh, help in that way. But uh, can I come back to the number of people who are who are going to come here? Yeah. And I'm delighted that they're coming here yeah. because we should help those people because we had to flee our country during a famine. People had to flee the north during the troubles. And we need to seriously look at the numbers. And then when we get the numbers, we know 11,000 in and around per million people yeah. we've agreed to take and we should do it. But we need to plan for that. And this morning, I was thinking to myself, well, it's all very well me saying that, you know, someone should do it or my neighbour should do it. So I decided today we're going to, the office that I have, we can all work from home. We're going to put a shower in here and we're going to accommodate a Ukrainian family here. 
and we're going to try and encourage other people in my town to do it and see how far we can get it spread because I can't ask people take people into their home if mm. I'm not prepared to do it myself so that's where I'm starting well, people are very pe- people are feeling very charitable at the moment I don't know how that's going to last uh, and you let's say 55,000 refugees if you say there's already 10,000 people on the waiting list that's going to be 65,000 people on the waiting list unless people act in, in this way and people are often charitable during war times and when they see it on their television screens you talked about Yugoslavia I was in Albania uh, in the 1990s watching the refugees come over the border and it was mainly women because the men were being shot I lived in Germany at the time yeah I worked with them yeah uh, uh, and so on and there was an outcry here where people wanted to help and they did help but today they give out about those refugees and they don't uh, remember that there was a war in Yugoslavia yeah, well, some people have short memories, but fortunately there's enough people like me that don't have short memories and will stick there for the long haul. And one thing that would massively help, and this is what I have suggested, and that the next time there is a resolution in the European Parliament or the next time there's an opportunity to insert texts like this, I will be pushing the idea that anyone with a Ukrainian passport can come here and work, live and play and exist. And that lessons, and it should should never be there in the first place, but that lessens people's issue with other people coming to their country, because okay, people might get tired after a while, but if these people are contributing to our society, helping our economy and creating more money so we can help more people, well, there shouldn't be a problem with that. But look, it's like this. If there was a hungry child outside your house and you had enough for five at your dinner table, you have enough for six. And I know people can say, and they're dead right if they say this about me, it's all right you can say that. Look at all the bloody money you have. And they're right. And that's why I'm going to try and do more. Because I can't look at my children uh, in the face and in the eyes and and then look back at me and say what are you going to do daddy and I don't do anything I've got to do something uh, and we've all got to do something it's a time for all of us to do a bit of soul searching in that sense can we get one thing clear yep I don't know anyone in this country who supports Vladimir Putin I don't know about different approaches to it they are wrong or they are right but I think it should be made clear I don't think there's a politician in this country whether it be Fine Gael and them not rooting out the oligarchs whether it be Mick Wallace with what he said in the last while I don't think there's a single politician in this country that isn't horrified and absolutely disgusted with what Vladimir Putin is doing but I will say it again we are faced with two awful realities what he is doing in Ukraine is absolutely horrific but we have to take into account if this man chooses to do it and you know what he's mad enough to do it he can take everyone out so obviously if you're approaching someone who is deranged and is dangerous you have to be very careful how you approach it you don't just run at them and think later you think and then you act and I think I'll say it again the strongest thing we can do is to rip his financial heart out of his body and we can do that and there was a saying when I was growing up and I don't know do you remember it no mon no fun well we can change that to no mon, no guns 
And if he has no money, he'll run out of money for war. And that's what we need to do. There has been one really good move, and I called for it at the time, and I thought we were slow on it. And that was knocking them out of the SWIFT system. Not completely and utterly, but what it does mean, and I was listening to a, a BBC Radio 4 documentary last night on it, it means that $630 billion of foreign currency reserves can't be liquidated now by Vladimir Putin because they're excluded from uh, the SWIFT is excluded from the Russian banks. We need to take that further with energy, with gas, with oil, and we need to suffocate this man okay. because if we don't do it, well, the consequences. The well, consequences are, well, I think you know the consequences yeah, are dire. Armageddon. All right, we've got to leave it there. Thank you indeed. And thanks, Michael, for your time and the space because I'll be honest, I wouldn't have done this on many shows, but you always give people the space to talk, whether you agree or not, and I really appreciate that. It's good journalism. Thank you. Well, thank you. Pleasure as always. That's Luke Ming Flanagan, Independent MEP. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to a Hadal private member's motion from Independent TD for Claire Michael McNamara, which called for the resumption of walk-in services for resuming your driving licence and that you would be able to pay for your new licence in cash. Michael McNamara is on the line. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us. Some of the reason why obstacles have been put in the way of people and they've had to apply for their licence to be renewed uh, online has been down to COVID, but COVID is over and done with, and so should some of these policies you argued yesterday. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the um, walk-in service was discontinued during COVID on um, public health advice, um, I suppose, like many services across the state. But um, uh, unbeknownst to, I think, many people, including myself, a new contract was awarded um, for the uh, National Driving Licence Service in 2021. And um, the government decided, in conjunction, it seems, with the service provider that were there, or at least that's what I took from from the minister's response yesterday, that um, a walk-in service would be um, permanently discontinued so that the essentially companies would be tendering for um, uh, an appointment-only service, which I suppose sounds all well and good in theory, but the practicalities of it are more difficult, particularly for some in society, in that you have to, uh, if you now want to renew your driving licence, you have to either um, make an appointment or do it online. But to do it online, you need to have a public services card. Not everybody has, has a public services card, and there are obviously mm. question marks around the, the, the use of the public services card that have been debated at great length over I think the, the Minister questioned that, did she not? She said that it wasn't a requirement as such. You could use one, but it wasn't a requirement. No, she said it's, it is a requirement to renew it online, but uh, that it was acceptable and lawful because you could also renew your driving license in person. But to renew it in person, you need to book an appointment, and to book an appointment, you either need to go online to book the appointment, or you need to go on the telephone. Now, I had constituents coming into my office um, um, saying that they were 90 minutes trying to uh, on the telephone trying to book an appointment. My office spent 45 minutes uh, waiting to um, try to book an appointment to no avail. Darren O'Rourke, who's a Sinn Féin TD uh, for Mead East, um, 
said that his office had spent 101 minutes uh, on the phone before they received a reply. So, I mean, it's not a localised problem to Clare, unfortunately, it's a problem uh, right across the country that people simply can't get appointments when they seek to, to uh, and of course you can't show up in person. Mm. So it is creating a real difficulty, and I mean, it's a very frustrating experience to be on the telephone for 101 minutes after, uh, please hold, mm. please hold, press one for this, press two for that, yeah. press three for the mm. other, and I, I remember my own parents the service then, it was at the time that it had been moved out of the local authority offices, there was a time when you could just go to your local authority office, it seemed to work for the vast majority of people in the country, they could go to their local authority office, renew their driving mm. licence. But when you get an appointment anyway. and you get your licence and you go to pay, they don't accept cash? They don't accept cash, and again, um, uh, I... Um, um, the, the central bank say that all businesses are lawfully required to accept cash unless consumers uh, or customers have agreed uh, something else uh, beforehand. So, I mean, I, I would question the legality of that. I mean, I, yeah. I couldn't, you know, be definitive about it. But in any event, it's a huge... Inc- I mean, not everybody has has bank cards, credit cards. Obviously, a, a okay. certain co- section of the population has, but not everybody. And, I mean, again, I had a constituent who did everything right, got his um, um, driving license, going to pay for it. I was told, sorry, we don't accept cash. So he rang up his wife, who gave him the bank card details, right. and they wouldn't accept that because his oh, wife wasn't okay. present. Right. So then he had to book a new appointment. Mm. Okay, that was a bit of a, a dilemma. There are many ways of paying. Uh, we'll hear about them from uh, the Minister. This is what she had to say to you in the doll yesterday. Payment at the NDLS offices can be made by credit card, debit card, Google Pay, Apple Pay or PayZone vouchers. PayZone vouchers can be purchased from retailers in towns and villages nationwide. Card payment is significantly the most predominant means of payment. The NDLS allows an accompanying person make card payments for customers who do not have cards themselves. The decision was made to not accept cash after a market-sounding exercise where only one potential bidder advocated accepting cash payments. The decision was made after evaluating security, administration and value for money factors. Hildegard Nocton uh, speaking uh, in uh, the Dáil yesterday. The Minister uh, does make some arguments, good arguments, uh, that there's a lot of ways of paying or getting somebody else to pay for you or you can buy a voucher before you go uh, to uh, the centre or um, if uh, that wasn't the case, they wouldn't have anybody to run these centres based on uh, the bids that they received. Michael McNamara. Hello. Or, or oh. any of the other methods, I would suspect almost none. Um, but then this issue of bids, I mean, Unpo- it's, it's very significant that Unpost was an unsuccessful bidder for this service. Now, I don't know if Unpost was the bidder that said that mm. they would deal in cash, but every post office in Ireland deals in cash every day, so I'd be surprised if they weren't. And I mean, it does, you know, we really have to wonder why, you know, the government and government TDs and even opposition TDs as well, of course, are, are bemoaning the lack of services in towns and villages across the country, the fact that banks are pulling their services out, mm. forcing people to go on the telephone or go online, and that uh, Unpost needs to be given more business. And yet we turn around and, and do this. I mean, you know, it's a, the, the company that provides the service, or are, um, are, insofar as it can be called a service, is, um, is a Swiss logistics company. Um, and I know that, I mean, Unpost... Uh, sought to, to, to obtain the, the tender. Now, maybe they wouldn't have been able to provide it in every post office, but I'm sure they would have been able to provide it in many. And as I say, they deal in cash all the time. OK, uh, just uh, before you leave us, very briefly, uh, talk to me, uh, if you would, uh, about uh, the refugees uh, we're expecting to come here from Ukraine. 20,000, uh, Luke Mink Flanagan saying a moment ago, that could be as many as 60,000. Uh, you were talking about them in the doll yesterday as well, saying that if they come here, uh, they may not be able to drive uh, 
even though they be licensed to drive in Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, we recognise driving licences from some countries. So if you come from various countries, um, Australia, Japan, the United Kingdom, um, and parts of Canada, most parts of Canada, and you have a valid driving licence, you'll have it recognised. Now, it takes a very long time. The other deputies were complaining that it took nine months when it shouldn't do that. But you'll be able to get a new driving licence. You'll be able to exchange your existing driving licence for your new one. Now, Ukraine is a country that isn't on that list, and so significantly is the United States of America. And, you know, we've a lot of people who come and go from the Irish people who return, or indeed Irish-Americans who return to live in Ireland. And while they're licensed to drive, while they're on holidays, once they start living here, um, they're not licensed. And I, I accept that not every there can't be a mutual recognition system in a place of every country in the world. But instead of just having to... to um, to, to do a practical test and a theory test as they would in the United Kingdom, for example, if they came from an unrecognized country, you have to do all of the the driving um, lessons, you know, which I think is inexplicable to me. I mean, if you've been driving all of your life in another country and you've considerable experience of driving, um, I, 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 don't, I, I do accept that you should have to prove that you can drive if there isn't a mutual recognition mm-hmm. system in place. But why should you have to sit driving tests if you've been driving for 20 years of your life okay. in Ukraine? It's or in the United States well, I think or in, in the, any other country. I think in the case of Ukraine, it's something that will have to be looked at uh, given uh, the well, numbers that are because we want people to be able to work yeah. if, they, um, yeah. if, they, if they come here. But the sheer volume um, of people, uh, I mean, apart from uh, delaying other people from uh, being able to take a, a driving test or get a lesson if there's going to be twenty to 60,000 people coming to the country. Michael, I have to leave there for the moment. Thank you, though, indeed, for joining us on the programme. Michael McNamara is an independent TD for Clare. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, here's some big figures for you. Listen to this. Fulcher Ireland is investing 1.4 million euro. It's in a new tourist attraction in Nauth. It's going to create 266 jobs in Meath and it will generate, they say, 1.6 million euro in additional tourism revenue over the next five years. It's all being launched uh, by the Minister of State with responsibility for the Office of Public Works, Fine Gael TD, Patrick O'Donovan, who's on the line. Good morning, Minister. Thank you indeed for joining us. What is about to be unveiled? Uh, Myron Michael, thanks very much for having me on. Uh, look, it's a, it's a good news story in, in what is otherwise, I suppose, like a difficult news cycle these morning. So uh, good news for County Mead from the Office of Public Works this morning. Um, your listeners would know this story a lot better than I would. Um, now it is a a uh, significant part of the Mead landscape and the, I suppose the whole um, Bine Valley experience and um, the Office of Public Works are very fortunate to be the custodians of it. Um, so we have, together with Falch Ireland, um, invested significantly here over the last number of years and uh, even notwithstanding the COVID um, setbacks, uh, we're now in a, a situation where we can unveil the, the new visitor experience, which is uh, really, I suppose, modernising uh, experience here for the visitors that are going to come to to denote um, uh, um, megalithic tomb, and uh, we hope that uh, you know this investment will um, enhance the, the tourism offering for this part of County Mead, and will really, I suppose, drive the tourism offering of the Loudmead area. And um, so it is, uh, and you'll recall from the last time that I was speaking to you, it is a, a series of investments that the Office of Public Works have. Uh, in what we have custody of um, together with the whole Newgrange experience as well and um, it, it brings a significant investment from the Office of Public Works to our partners in Falch Ireland 
uh, and delighted today to be here with uh, Catherine Martin, the Minister for Tourism, to, to launch the, the experience. Uh, and this will make it available a uh, visitor centre for people who are visiting the area where uh, they'll get a, a digital exhibition and a lesson in history and what it all means through interactive and audiovisuals. Yeah, because look, I suppose visitors, we know from the Office of Public Works, we know what, what our visitors are looking for. And, and you know, we know from um, face-to-face experiences that our visitors, national and international, um, you know, they're, they're more demanding. And that's rightly so. People are looking for more and they're, look, they're looking to, to gain more and they're looking to be more educated in terms of what it is that we're trying to impart. And, you know, as I said at the start, we're just custodians. We're just passing through and we're just minding these monuments for the next generation. And as Minister for the Office of Public Works, I'm often told that I have the probably the best job in government, you know, when I go around the country and I see what our history and our heritage is. Um, you know, I'm struck by, first of all, the natural beauty. I'm, I'm here looking out over the landscape of County Mead this morning and it absolutely is spectacular. I mean, you're very fortunate in this part of the country, I suppose. Your listeners don't even probably wake up in the morning. You don't appreciate what it is that you're looking at at all. But I'm, I'm struck by the, 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 the beauty of what the landscape that I'm here. I'm standing in the farmyard in those house this morning and it is absolutely stunning. Um, but so what we're going to be presenting here as the Office of Public Works to the international visitor and the national visitor now that the country is reopened for tourism is really something to behold and this investment by the taxpayer through the Office of Public Works is something that we should all be very proud of and I know that the people of Mead and the wider northeastern region will also be very proud of and it's about driving visitor numbers in into the area like the last numbers that we have are of the order of about 50,000 for now itself. But we, we want to push that up uh, to about 80,000. And the total number of people that we have into the new Grange area then, you know, will, will be substantial. You know, we know that uh, the, the whole new Grange experience is, is phenomenal. And I was up there for myself for the solstice. Mm-hmm. But now it has potential to be even, I think, bigger than it is at the moment. And Fantastic. that will, in, into the East Mead area and into the wider Loud Mead area, in as well and the entire um, uh, northeastern uh, uh, part of the country okay. will well, we'll ultimately drive economic development and that's what this is about. Brilliant. Okay, Minister, thank you indeed for joining us. Very uh, much. That's uh, Minister of State with responsibility for the OPW, Patrick O'Donovan, TD. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's talk a, a little bit about uh, the new law which will give you the right as an employee to request that you work remotely or to work from home as the case may be. So the way it's going to work is that once you're six months in a workplace uh, you'll have the right to request remote working. Uh, your employer has to respond within 12 weeks and has to give a reasoned response. Uh, the employer can say yes. Uh, they can issue a counteroffer um, perhaps partially accepting your request, uh, which you then have a month to uh, accept or refuse, or they can say no. But if they say no, they have to give a good reason, and it has to be a stated reason. Uh, there'll be a right of appeal, uh, either an internal appeals process or it's a WRC or both, uh, and it will be necessary to give a solid reason that stands up. It won't be just a procedure right. It can't, won't be just enough to just give a reason. Uh, that reason will have to stack up uh, and be solid. And that might be clear from some of the documents today, but certainly will be clear in the, in the final legislation when it's published. Uh, and of course, you will have the right to request again after 12 months and have your request to be reconsidered uh, afresh. 
Uh, also, every workplace will be required to have a remote working policy, setting out very clearly what that workplace's policy is uh, in relation to remote working. And that's the tarnished uh, Leo Vratker. He was speaking towards uh, the end of uh, January and explaining uh, that your employer would have to give a stated reason. Or to put that another way, there's 13 acceptable reasons and it would have to be one of those 13 reasons for refusing you your right to work from home or remotely, as the case may be. He said that would become clear in time. Uh, it doesn't appear to have become clear because uh, the Irish Congress of Trade Unions are describing the bill as useless. Let's speak uh, to John O'Connell, who's uh, the General Secretary of the FSU, that's the Financial Services Union. Good morning to you, John, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us. The tarnish sounded uh, pretty um, reasonable there in how we outlined it, uh, but there's something amiss, it appears. Yeah, so the, the initial legislation that was published uh, we feel is very employer-weighted. Uh, and what we mean by that is that despite what the, the Tarnish said in, in that clip that you, you had, that currently as the legislation stands, the employer can have 13 various very broad reasons for refusing your request to, to work remotely. And in addition to that, and again, despite what the Tarnish said, you can only appeal on technical grounds, such as the decision from the employer came to you late, you, you can't appeal on the substantive grounds. Mm. And what was happening yesterday was the Oireachtas Committee was, was uh, I suppose, taking representations from employers and trade unions onto uh, the outline legislation that, that is uh, published. Uh, and that's where we in the Congress of Trade Unions and our union and other unions have worked together to, to highlight these areas. So this isn't something new. This is something that is in at least 12 European countries with six others um, proposing to bring in similar legislation. And in the UK and New Zealand, it's been in law for uh, for over eight years yeah. and has worked perfectly and doesn't require 13 reasons or anything like it in, in, in terms of that. So very weighted favourably to, to employers. And other than having an actual right to request doesn't really pan out in, in, in terms of what the reality is for people. So I represent yeah. people in the finance industry yeah. uh, and the vast majority of them have and will continue for the rest of their working lives, lots of them, to work from home. Uh, and so what we're saying is the legislation needs to be strengthened. Yeah. It needs to, to, to be balanced uh, in, in a way that looks after the business. Uh, and we, we certainly recognise that, but also must uh, have a, a sense of balance in okay. terms of the, you know, the, the reasons on which I can be declined. Well, let's take the most obvious of all. You can't do the job from home. You have to be here to do the job. Uh, and that applies in some circumstances and doesn't apply in other circumstances. If one of your members was told that, uh, undoubtedly they'd be able to respond and say, look, all I need is good Wi-Fi and a laptop and uh, be at the end of the phone and be able to communicate and whatever else. Uh, so you could contest it. If it was a barman, on the other hand, uh, of course they can't do the job and serve customers somewhere else from home. Uh, but uh, surely the township was saying there that in the case of your members, if you were told that you couldn't work from home, you'd be able to contest it and that would stand up and that you would win that case. And and, and the township is on the record saying that the law can be strengthened. But as it currently uh, as it currently is written, you can only appeal on a technical ground. Right. And so the, the barman is one where it's an obvious, yeah. where... Mm. where he or her uh, or she has to uh, be in the premises mm. in order to, to, to work. 
And then there's clearer ones, like I said, in, in, in my sector, thousands upon thousands of people working from home now and will continue into the future. Right. And then there's the middle ground of where there needs to be a debate. So we don't see big problems arising out of this right to request. We think most employers and employees, common sense will apply and mm. it, it, it will go. It's that middle group of people where there's a debate. Uh, and, you know, if you have a researcher in your program, can they work from home as effectively as they as they work in the studio beside you? Mm. Or is it that they're required? There's a debate to be had there, and, and it could be a blend. Mm. That some days it's that's it. totally appropriate yeah. they're in. And come in days. for a couple of hours one day uh, and that sort of uh, thing. And that's where the law falls down, is it? Yeah, so that's where the law falls down. It, it allows a very, very broad sweeping 13 reasons uh, for employers on which they can... Um, uh, refuse your, your your request, and then you can't do anything about that. So even if you are the researcher in the program mm. or the bank worker, you can't do anything about that unless the employer can back to you outside the timelines in in the legislation. Whereas what we're saying is, for for people who have genuine reasons as to why remote working would work for them they should have an avenue of getting somebody to independently look at that and say, I think that's fair and reasonable. I think a blend would work for that employee, trial it and, 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 and so forth. Remember, a quarter of the workforce worked from home during the first pandemic. Mm. 25% of the workforce. So there can be no argument for 25% of the workforce. Then there's another high portion of the workforce that is physical work and, and requires a presence. And Nobody is suggesting that, that people like barmen and hairdressers and so forth can work remotely. Nobody is suggesting that. But there's that middle group of, of people where they should be given the opportunity to demonstrate. Perhaps they've already demonstrated and the employer is just taking a, 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 an ideological point of view to say, I want everyone back in office full time and that's it. Yeah, so uh, it's, I, it's I think uh, employers would argue with that point as well and would say that there were some problems uh, and uh, that uh, whilst it may have worked well most of the time, it wasn't ideal a lot of the time for when that quarter of uh, the workforce were working from home during lockdown. Yeah, I think there, I think it, it does sometimes break down in a task basis where the certain tasks are absolutely ideal for working from home. Mm. And there's other aspects of a role that maybe isn't. So it might take a, a bit of working through with the employer. But for that to happen, there has to be a, a good debate. You know, we encourage people to join trade unions. So you have a voice and you have people come forward and can have that debate, skilled negotiators on, on, on your behalf. And the vast majority of employers are reasonable and will and adopt an, a reasonable approach to this Remember the, the upsides of it, improved work-life balance, uh, an increase in female participation in the workforce that is documented mm. uh, and attributed to um, uh, remote working, reduction in stress for people, and a greater sense of community, local spending by people in their, in their locations, and the great development which the government uh, technology are um, pushing out in terms of the development of these rural hubs. 
So, mm. so there's people, a lot people of will tell you as well there's downsides to it as well, of course, uh, the isolation, uh, not having a, a proper office and work and uh, health and safety, uh, health and safety um, work practices uh, being thrown out the window and that sort of thing, leading to depression and uh, lack of interaction with other people, uh, lack of brainstorming, all that sort of thing. Uh, but employers might like it on the other hand. I mean, this is a two way street because there could be a saving for employers in terms of office space and all that goes with that light heat insurance uh, and so on uh, and I suppose you should be asking the question uh, as well uh, what if people don't want to work from home should they be uh, permitted to or should the employer be obligated to provide them with office space and I think this debate will go on for for quite a while in in terms of till we settle into um uh, that nobody has come up with the with the silver bullet that says this is exactly how it should should work. Uh, but there is an overwhelming demand from uh, people for it uh, because they see all the, the the upsides. And yes, you're right to point out that there's challenges uh, in it as well. And that's why I think most employers and employees favour a blend. There's a small percentage of the people who would never want to go back into the office, totally satisfied with working remotely full time. And then there's another small percentage of people who, you know, who would like to be in the office full time. And they see that uh, from, from, from their point of view. So it, 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 it's an evolving situation in, in that respect. But from the point of view of a very simple piece of legislation, which we believe is overly complicated and overly weighted to the to the employers. That's where our focus is at the moment in terms of uh, asking government to look at it again and look at the flaws that that uh, are there that would make it very difficult to work the legislation. Uh, and those two areas in particular, the, the broad sweeping refusal mechanism and then the right of appeal. And if those issues were addressed, I think we're on our way to a better piece of legislation that employer and employee friendly. Okay, John, we leave it there for the moment. As you say, it's a a debate that will run for some time to come. And thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. John O'Connell is uh, the General Secretary of uh, the Financial Services Union, the FSU. Now, thanks uh, to Margaret in Drogheda, who was on the phone to us uh, about Luke Ming Flanagan's interview, saying he's dead right. Putin is deranged and who knows what he might do next. Even though Putin is very wrong in what he's doing, we've to thread carefully. You'd be very fearful of what might happen. Uh, She says, I I do hope uh, that the people of Ireland welcome the Ukrainian refugees with open arms. Thanks, uh, as I say, Margaret, for taking the time to call us and to share your thoughts with us. Uh, Jim and Navin uh, on uh, pretty much uh, the same topic, uh, saying it'll be interesting to see if the Catholic Church authorities will open all of the buildings they have in this country with lots of spare rooms for refugees coming in. It's now time to practice what they preach and let's see what action they take instead of preaching to others to help those less well off. Thank you indeed, Jim and Navin. We'll be talking about exactly this in just a moment. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, there's a lot of people who are leaving the Ukraine At this stage, it's over a million and that number is going to grow and grow significantly. 
they'll be looking for somewhere to go uh, and they will be allowed to go anywhere in Europe without a visa and stay for up to three years. That's as things stand and of course uh, all of uh, this could change. What will that mean in this country? Well the Taoiseach said yesterday that that could mean more than 20,000 people will arrive in Ireland. Uh, as you've been hearing in uh, the bulletins the Minister for Justice Helen McEntee has said we can expect tens of thousands of people. Earlier this morning on uh, this programme Luke Ming Flanagan MEP said the correct figure should be around 55-60,000 refugees coming into the country. Let's uh, speak to Nick Henderson, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Refugee Council. Good morning to you, Nick, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. We're in for a a big challenge, whatever uh, that number turns out to be. Have you any idea on how many people you'd expect to come to this country? No, uh, I don't. And I I think we should all be cautious about putting a number on on, on this. Uh, We know already that more than a million people have left Ukraine, and that figure is likely to continue to increase uh, depending on how long the Russian invasion of Ukraine uh, goes on for. Um, But I I think it's probably wise that we just uh, don't start... uh, bringing out big numbers, 20,000 or 50,000, just yet. Mm. Um, I think that there's a lot of this to play out. Uh, What's been decided today in Brussels uh, by the European Union member states is whether uh, we invoke something called the Temporary Protection Directive, which would mean all people, all Ukrainians, and also residents of Ukraine who have fled because of the Russian invasion, would be given a temporary protection status. So that would mean that, as you said, uh, Ukrainians would be able to live in any EU member state, bar Mm. Denmark, which has opted out of this. Okay, but the numbers um, the numbers do matter. Uh, I, I mean, yeah. uh, housing is obvious. Uh, we were speaking uh, with Michael McNamara. I don't know if you heard any of his motion in uh, the Dáil yesterday uh, about uh, renewing your driving licence, uh, but as part of that debate, the discussion turned around to what about all of the refugees who come to this country? Their driving licence won't be recognised. And the problems that will, fa- will, will face, uh, it, it's one thing if it's 1,000 people, it's a different thing if it's 60,000 people. Yeah, of course. No, d- no doubt, no doubt. So the does have to be an emergency response, of course, and you know we're at the yeah. we're at the very front of that. I'd hope, and we have received a large number of queries, um, but and of course it needs planning. But I think fifty thousand or or twenty thousand. I think we just have to wait um, and see how this develops. If we do, if the European Union does trigger the temporary protection directive, then people can travel to any EU member state, EU member state, and live. Yeah. Um, they will, in effect, skip the asylum process. So they don't have to go. They can, if they want, say that, I know, I believe I, I, I need full refugee protection. But in a sense, they can skip the asylum process. So mm. they would be entitled to work, uh, to receive social welfare supports and any other medical or education supports that they need. We would hope that would allow them to give them uh, some sort of footing to begin their their lives in Ireland, bearing in mind that people may want to go back to Ukraine um, if and when the invasion ends or whatever Mm. way that plays out. Mm. Um, So there is, or 
always going to be the challenge of accommodation. Yeah. But talk, um, talk, talk to me about the different challenges. Uh, and fair enough, if you don't want to put a figure on it yet until yeah. we have a better handle of it, let's say X amount of people, uh, and people have heard uh, the estimates at this stage and they can interpret that to mean whatever they want in their yeah. own heads. But if you have X amount of people coming to live in this country, where are they going to stay? What would that do to the social welfare bill? Uh, and what would it do to waiting times for driving tests or driving lessons uh, for that matter? And all of these things that go, how do you go about preparing for X amount of people? No doubt it's going to be a challenge. And I think what was said yesterday by, by the government, and I think we'll get an update tomorrow, is that they are creating extra capacity in terms of hotels. So people would be in a, they would arrive if they need accommodation, bearing in mind that some people may be able to live with friends and family, but if they need accommodation, and based on the queries that we're receiving so far, a fair proportion do, they would be, then be accommodated in, in a hotel. Unfortunately, that may, from that person's perspective, look very much like direct provision. The crucial difference being is that they have status. So their challenge immediately comes down to, uh, can I get accommodation? And there are options there, very difficult, as we all know. We've spoken about this before, Michael, mm-hmm. and your listeners will mm-hmm. know intimately how difficult it is. But the, the, the accommodation will be the challenge. So whether people can stay with friends and family, bearing in mind there is a, a Ukrainian community already here in Ireland. Secondly, whether members of the public could some, give them some sort of support through the community sponsorship uh, process or, or whether people are able to get, get, the, get their feet on the ground and try and get some sort of rental property uh, or possibly using um, ha- having started to work here in Ireland. Mm. So the, the, the options are, are, are not where, huge. Again, I mean, like that, really X amount of people, where are the jobs, where are the rental properties uh, and so on. Uh, there's a, a lot of people who are asking, uh, will they be able to let out a room or, or make a room available? Uh, uh, yeah. And people are very upset by all of this and they want to do something, if they can do something and they feel that that's something they can do at no cost to themselves. But then they're saying, um, would this be for a month, six months, a year, three years? As things stand, there is no visa requirement for three years. Uh, or what would happen uh, if people come to hotels and then they're moved into people's homes? Where do they go from there? Yeah, so that's going to be a problem or a challenge at least is that we have received ourselves a large number of offers of accommodation from people and that's really heartening to see. I think we can all we all know that the Irish public are very moved by by the situation in Ukraine. So we've received a large number uh, of offers of accommodation. Now it, it's fair to say that some of those we will could be appropriate for people who are arriving some some won't be so in due course uh, if the state isn't able to accommodate people and I'd say that's a big if because it's and we'll find out more tomorrow and from what Roderick, Minister Roderick O'Gorman said yesterday they are trying to bring in extra hotel capacity for people to be accommodated but if extra capacity is needed then it may be necessary to draw on, draw down on those offers, those very, very kind, um, thoughtful offers from, from members of the public. And we've received around 220 offers, which we're trying to triage using a, a form uh, on our, on, that's available on our website. There is an existing structure for this. It's called community sponsorship. We've used it for Syrian and Afghan refugees. So it may be possible for that program to be pivoted across to support uh, Ukrainian people. Mm. Whether it's, it's, it's needed for two years 
or a year, or even just a short period of time for people to get themselves on their feet. Uh, that, that, that remains to be seen. Uh, but it is likely, and this all goes back, I think, to, to the conflict and the invasion, is, is how long will it go on for mm-hmm. and the destruction that Russia reaps in, um, in Ukraine and whether people can return there, if mm-hmm. they can, and if they can ever return there in the, in, in the medium term. By, and that, by that, I mean in 2022. And because of uh, the nature of uh, the defence that uh, the Ukrainian... Uh, people are putting up and uh, the prohibition on men from 18 to 60 leaving the country. I guess that gives you a demographic of women and children who will be leaving the country. Does that pose problems? Um, well, I, I, I don't think so necessarily. Um, I, I, I think I also heard yesterday that people who've worked in, that, in the Ukrainian civil service are also being prevented from leaving because there's, there's, there's work to be done and administrative work still going on. Um, so I don't think it does necessarily... But uh, children coming with one parent, I suppose, is what's oh, on my yeah, mind. Sorry, means I mean, that, yeah. that, that somebody course, has to look yeah. after the child. Uh, so you have childcare problems or you have uh, one parent who can't go to work. And I think this is where the Ukraine, I'm sure the Ukrainian community in Ireland is mobilizing, well, it is mobilizing. Um, and, and then there's all, all the offers of volunteer support. So if, as we fear, as we all fear, the worst case scenario sort of plays out and the conflict continues, no doubt there's going to have to be real activation of voluntary offers and accommodation offers. But I do think the state and I, I, in fairness, they're, they're, they, we know that they're considering this now, today, um, oh, and yeah. yesterday and this week. They need to be at the forefront of the response. It yeah. cannot be immediately shifted back on to, to the Irish public, who, well, who, have, yeah. who, who have yeah. lots to offer, yeah. but it needs to be a state-led response. Uh, I suppose I, I, I know that I'm asking impossible questions, and I'm not expecting answers. I'm not expecting anybody to have the answers uh, to hand. Uh, but I think the question that needs to be asked is, how do we prepare? How do we go about uh, looking forward to... Uh, this in the most extreme of circumstances, whether that's 60,000 or 20,000 or whatever it is, uh, and say to ourselves, well, what can we do now? And, uh, you know, uh, do we start building or do we start... uh, I don't know. Uh, That's the point, I suppose. Yeah, no, and I I agree with you. And uh, if we're we're working through this, you know, let's bear in mind that for all... And I'm sure Ukrainians have, as as they'll tell us, have been warning of the invasion for weeks, but when we all woke up on Thursday morning last week and saw it, I think I certainly was surprised that as an organization we probably could have been better prepared, but we were all surprised. So we're pivoting now to, to respond where, for example, bringing in extra capacity to the organization, we're bringing in Ukrainian speakers to help us. In terms of what people can do, I think let's keep informing ourselves. We'll know more today because the European Union probably will trigger this this, this law, which gives Ukrainians pr- protection. That means that they will get entitled access to the supports that, that, that they need, but there will be that, that accommodation question. And we'll know more, I'd say, also, I'd imagine the government will update probably tomorrow about what their response mm. is, and then we'll, we'll know more, very unfortunately, by watching this, this, this invasion in, in front of our eyes. And, yeah. you, you know, we began the conversation talking about numbers, mm. but it, you are right, Michael, it's, the, the figure has gone up each day by something like 200,000 people. So, mm. 
if that projection yeah. continues. Yeah, well, I, I, I think they're talking about seven, eight million refugees yeah. leaving the country, that sort of, of uh, thing. And you mentioned Syria, Nick. Uh, uh, I don't know if you agree, but it, it seems to me that there's real parallels with Syria in that we're looking at people fleeing a, a country, mm. innocent civilians fleeing a, a country for fear of their lives because of war. And because of that war, the country could very well be flattened the way Syria was and it would be impossible for anybody to go back and live there. Yeah, and um, look, I'm not. It's drift, this is drifting out my area yeah, outside I of my know. area of expertise. But I, I, from 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 reading the news, uh, Russia has been wreaking havoc uh, and caused huge loss of life in Syria. Uh, let's not forget that. And so uh, now they're, they're, they seem to be doing the same with uh, w- with Ukraine. So they have a they have a playbook here. They have uh, history on this, and um, we work closely with the Syrian community in Ireland. And let's just hope, and I'm sure the Syrian community, as are all refugee communities, looking at Ukraine, thinking, let's hope that Ukraine doesn't end up like like that. Indeed, yeah. Well, there's some very, very challenging times ahead of us. Uh, times that none of us thought we would live through um, but uh, here we are war on the continent of Europe and uh, we will be living through it and we'll all have to uh, search deep and uh, find solutions uh, together Nick thank you indeed for joining us thank you you very much Nick Henderson Chief Executive Officer of the Irish Refugee Council Michael Reed on LMFM Now, earlier this week, uh, the Minister for Children launched uh, the State of the Nation's Children's Report. It's a lot of children in this country. Uh, They account for 23.8% of uh, the population. Uh, That's over a million children, 1,191,125 children living in this country last year. Uh, And let's talk uh, about uh, some of uh, the ways uh, that they are living in this country with Fianna Fáil's spokesperson on children in the Shannon, Senator Erin McGreehan, who's on the line. And a very good morning to you. And thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. There's a lot of good things to say about life for children in this country, isn't there, Senator McGreen? There is a lot of things. Yes, absolutely. We have a fantastic country, but that doesn't mean that we have no challenge. You know, there's no challenges. Um, and, you know, the reports, as, as your researchers were saying earlier to me, was in that, that bullying and that increase of the, the of bullying in between in our children. And um, I think it, it has increased from from 26% of all children um, experienced mm-hmm. bullying to 31% um, in 2018. And that's very, very concerning as a parent, as, a, as someone, as an auntie, um, and just as, a, as yeah. a, a, someone who is in, in the general population, that's really, really concerning. And I suppose we have to look at, at you know, the effects of bullying, the cause of this bullying, and what we can do as, yeah. as adults, as parents, as guardians, and also as a government. That's an increase that took place over a a four-year period uh, from 2040 to 2018. So a third of the children in uh, the country are are being bullied, uh, 31.1%, as you say, up from 26%. You could look on that in different ways, uh, the glass half full or the glass half empty, depending on whether there's more bullying or there's more reporting of bullying. Yes, and you you can say that, but whichever way it is, um, 31%. Of our young, of our children and young adults, 
um, experience bullying in, um, you know, in 2018 um, and, and whether they are now reporting, which is a really positive thing. Uh, people feel safe, feel that there is um, there's avenues there mm. to be able to report that, that bullying and to, and to understand what, they, what are they, they are going through as bullying. I suppose um, myself growing up, you know, there was uh, situations where I might have been able to uh, articulate myself and say that that was actually a bullying incident. I never knew, never understood. So we're understanding now mm. what actually bullying is and how, and understanding the effects and the long-term effects mm. of that bullying. Well, because when I was growing up, I think I'm probably a little bit older than you, there was no such thing as bullying. Uh, there was kids who were moaning and uh, given out uh, and crying to their mammies uh, and they were told to cop themselves on and go out and stand up for themselves. Give as good as you get was the response usually, in other words. Well, I'm kind of glad I wasn't growing up in, in your day, Michael. Mm. Um, because it was only 150 was, years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yes, and, mm. and I suppose that's it. It is, we have changed our attitudes um, now. And growing up before might have been, you know, the... the like, the survival of the fittest mm. and if you weren't fit for that rough and tumble and the difference between rough and tumble and, and horse playing and silly fun in a playground to act to actually you know violent and obsessive and compulsive bullying mm. and attacks mm. on people no, it's I all by perception is, isn't it uh, I mean even if you go back to name calling and uh, whether that is tolerated which is of course the, day, the, the situation today uh, where people will intervene and people will be spoken to and asked to behave differently uh, or back uh, in the uh, dark ages uh, when you were called a crybaby and so what uh, sticks and stones don't break my bones or break my bones but names will never hurt me was the attitude yeah, absolutely. I thought we have to kind of, you know, look at that. And absolutely, you know, I, I, you could call me something mean, Michael, and I could say, Michael, you're a bully, um, and, and vice versa. But what we have to do is we have to look at what is that bullying and how we as parents, as guardians, mm. as the government, build in, um, build in, you know, the, the knowledge within our young people. What actually is bullying? Mm. Teach our children what it is. Teach our children to be resilient. Teach our children to stand up against those bullies and to be strong against it. And also teach our children to know that there is a safe place for people and um, for them if they are finding it tough. Because you know, I hear people, um, adults, um, older than me, Michael, speaking about their experiences as a child and and being tormented. On a, on a on in school, and that's very different to you know, uh, you know, as uh, uh, the bully, the, the things that mm. we might have seen in the playground, you know, be calling a crybaby. Yes, that's we build in resilience, Michael, into our children to be mm. able to understand that not everything is a, a, a deep attack, and not everything is bullying, and there will be mean people. Mm. But also on. But when that, they call you names, they, they when they call you names, it can be very hurtful because quite often uh, they'll say something about your appearance. Absolutely, and it is hurtful, and it's hurtful as an adult when mm. people call you names, and that is as well as bullying. But what we have to do is we have to build in that tolerance, and we see if you break down those categories of bullying, um, and in that report, Michael, we see that you know there's an increase in bullying on traveller children, an increase in, in bullying in on immigrant children, on children with disabilities, and yes, you can say that there was maybe a, an increase of reporting. Yeah. We do herald this country as a country that is 
tolerant of difference mm. that we that, that we tolerate you know us all being who we want to be and that is we must we must fit, make sure that we have that in our schools and that if a child is from a traveller background, then we respect that background and we teach our children to respect. We teach our children to to have that tolerance. Now I am um, you know, glad that the Minister for Education announced that there would be a steering committee on mm. how the Department of Education on on how and a review on their on the that department's action plan on building yeah. bullying because it was published in 2013 and it's, um, it's due a review absolutely and the steering committee will have a cross discipline a cross se- uh, uh, sector um, uh, officials on that mm. on that you know from from the National Travel Women's Forum from Women's Aid from Living in, uh, Independent Living Movement Ireland from WebWise so from a, cr- a cross sector of our society, the steering group is made up of, um, and they will say, you know, when that bullying, if that bullying gets to, uh, 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 you know, to at any level, that they the school is equipped, and also mm. parents are equipped to help their child through it, and also help the bully. Is it getting to that level too quickly? Uh, is that uh, part of uh, the problem why so many young people are having mental health problems? Do they need to toughen up at all? Yeah, I, yes, you can say toughen up, but, but Michael, feelings are feelings. No know, matter what yeah. way, no, know, I, no matter I, what way you look at it. And, you know, I suppose I understand that yeah, you can say tough enough, but we can say that on everything. I know that, and, 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 absolutely and, everything. But we have to be kind. It's not a rhetorical question. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not yeah. suggesting the, the the answer to that question. I'm just asking it as a a, a question and honestly as a, a question. Uh, and if possibly, uh, we give too much credence to complaints. Uh, and is there a, a middle ground that perhaps would serve our children better? I think we need to serve all our children better, Michael, and explain to the to the child who might be bullied or the child who is bullying um, and why there is there's a whole re- there's an incredible amount of research done on why a child might bully mm. you know whether they're seeking that attention they're they're lonely they're frustrated they're and um, they've sh- shame for some reason or they um have a, a difficulty when they they have um you know they're being bullied themselves mm. so we have to look at the entire thing and not just that the bully is bad and the bullied are good yeah there are problems there but our response as well our, our response i mean and i'm again i'm not saying uh, i have the answer to this but is there a risk that we molly coddle children into a situation uh, where they become so timid that the smallest of things upset them uh, that they can't cope with life with living in this world absolutely and i think it's it's about as I said earlier, Michael, building in resilience, and for people to know, you know, the, um, how to how to deal with mean and horrible people. Because we know there are mm. horrible people at every walk of life. You go into a workplace, you go into on the street, everywhere. We come across people who who behave in a in a really horrible fashion towards you. This is our life. Mm. We have to build in that resilience. But there's no reason why that those actions should be tolerated just because somebody says, um, "Well, the the receiver of that of that um, that that behaviour needs to toughen up." We shouldn't have to toughen up. No one should accept or have to accept um, that that. So it's about building resilience, but also building that tolerance that is okay. needed. And I think that would um, 
you know, serve us well at every walk of life, at every age. Um, and we look at, you know, um, our in- we've spoken before about online abuse, Michael. You know, it, it's, gen- it's an awful lot of adults who, um, who are bullied online and who, who are on the receiving end and the givers Lem- of serious, of, um, of, of, of nasty Lem- and unnecessary things. Okay, let me just ask you one very quick question because uh, I'm being pressed here for time. Uh, and I want to give you a statistic and then just very briefly tell me if you think it's a good piece of news or a bad piece of news. But 88.2% of the children in the country aged between 10 and 17 said they were happy with their lives at present. Well, again, you can say that um, glass half full, glass half empty, mm. 88% saying that they were, they were pleased. And we look at the remainder. Mm. And, you know, and why? Yeah. Where We have to look through the categories of why where, you where, can probably where, see it in the statistics as well because absolutely. that's that's about 12%. Uh, 13% yeah. of uh, the children's population were at risk of poverty in the same year. Yeah, yeah. All right. poverty, people with disabilities. You know, there's a whole yeah. pile of cross-intersectional reasons why someone, and that is the job of us all, Michael, to, to raise the raise those stats. Absolutely. Look, sure let's, we look after our children. Let's cherish them all. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Fianna Falls spokesperson on children in Canada. Aaron Senator Aaron McGreen. We asked uh, Michael Reed on LMFM. The Labour Party TD Ivana Backage, if she could talk to us uh, today, she said she wouldn't be around today. I'm not sure if it's true, but somebody said uh, she's busy polishing her crown ahead of the coronation. I was advised by my parliamentary colleagues on Tuesday morning uh, that they had lost collective confidence in my leadership. Uh, this was a surprise to me but I accepted the decision immediately. He felt that Labour's time in government was hard... That's Alan Kelly speaking yesterday, uh, announcing his decision to resign as uh, the leader of uh, the Labour Party. Let's speak to our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, who's on the line. Good morning to you, Sean, and uh, thanks for joining us on uh, the programme. Alan Kelly was clearly told to walk the plank. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And as you mentioned, came as a surprise to him, came as a surprise around Leinster House as well. Yesterday, there's um, the, the divisions in Labour, I suppose, have come to such a head that they, they asked him to go, uh, and especially that I think some of the loyalists, obviously we knew that there was a, a split in the party. It was a very close uh, election race between him and Aon O'Reardon, and we knew that some weren't ever going to be overly happy with Alan Kelly as leader because of his, I suppose, his personal style and maybe his past pronouncements as well. But even those who had been loyal to him, the likes of Duncan Smith and Sean Sherlock this week, saying that, uh, you know, time is up and... Uh, the reasons were kind of given behind it. There seems to have been some issue around the um, the appointment of a staff member and how that was done internally that kind of maybe brought this to a head, but it seems to be more longer-term issues about how Labour is going in the polls, uh, how he has managed things over the last two years through the pandemic and the fact that they're not really making any sort of in, an inroads as well as trying to maybe break with that 2011 to 2016 government, which, of course, Alan Kelly was a minister, minister for housing in. Uh, and so that's where Ivana Batchik gets her presumptive favourite title mm. from as well as talking some some sources in Labour. Is it a, a case of polishing the crown ahead of uh, the coronation? Uh, is it a case of the king is dead, long live the queen? Uh, 
quite possibly. It certainly looks that way and uh, every indication that we got last night was that the parliamentary party had already decided on a successor and that successor was going to be Ivana Batchik, although Mary Sherlock, the uh, Labour senator this morning, saying that her preference would be either Batchik or Duncan Smith. And they are, of course, the only two TDs that they have who don't have a, a link or weren't in that, uh, that uh, 2016 government. Um, but you, you wonder about Duncan Smith. I mean, they're both first-time TDs, but Ivana Batchik, of course, has been around the scene a long time, long-standing Senator, whereas Smith is maybe a rising star in the party and one for the future, but perhaps this is not his time to see whether he declares or whether he tries to go for it. And it could cause a little bit of division there, but from people in, I've been speaking to in Labour, certainly their sense is uh, it's time to go with a woman, it's time to get back to kind of Labour campaigning on social issues of the left and try to put the party that way as well as putting its, its more recent governmental path behind them. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, are they right? Uh, I mean, because um, she is a woman and uh, she certainly has been uh, to the fore uh, in looking for change, which would be in line with left-wing policies. But we are talking about a high-brow barrister from the posh, leafy suburbs. Will she appeal to the blue-collar voters? Yeah, it's hard to know. As you say, she kind of falls into that now. To be honest, I think Labour made a mistake here. I think the fact that they didn't even give Alan Kelly two years, not even one election. As he pointed out last night, any election that uh, he had been a part of as Labour Party leader, he had won, uh, that being the four on the campaigns and the by-election for the God of Anabatic into the doll and uh, I, I think to not even give him that chance I think he would have actually been quite a good campaigner during an election campaign you know we were all looking forward to the, the de- uh, debate that would have had Leo Varadkar, Mary Lou McDonald and Alan Kelly all going at each other they're all very kind of bombastic leadership styles whereas that's not really who Ivana Batchik is she's more of a, a campaigner than a debater if you like so I, I was personally surprised that they didn't even let him get that far and try to lead the party because I don't think whoever you put in as Labour Party leader is not going to change their fortunes overnight. They're not going to dip above sort of the 3 to 5% that they've been in over the last few years. That is a much longer term project and maybe this is a realisation that they needed to, to bring a broom out and start that. They didn't have the option after the last election to do it because everyone, every realistic candidate for leader to replace Brendan Howland have been in that particular government. Now they do uh, in Ivana Batic. Although, could you even say she's guaranteed to hold her seat in Dublin based out? I'd say that's, yeah. that's going to be a very a very fine one thing and what's a very, very tough constituency. So if it does end up being her, it's a big gamble for Labour. But I mean, in some senses, what have they got to lose? It's not like they're riding high with a, with a, you know, a lot to throw away. They're really in, in the absolute doldrums and maybe they think this throw the dice yeah. is something that can reinvent could it be the end of uh, the Labour Party, I wonder, or you know, the beginning of a merge with uh, the Social Democrats? Well, that's, I mean, that's the talk that's uh, been around Leinster House, that surely it's inevitable for the two of them to merge. And uh, Social Democrats, you would talk to them, say, absolutely no way, we're on the up and they're on the down. But you have to consider from the Sock Dems as well that depending on the timing of the election, it's not a certainty that Catherine Murphy or Roshan Shorthall will run again. They're both in the in the twilight of what have been um, very esteemed dull careers. But if we do go a full-term government 2024, 2025, uh, then it is a question mark of whether they want to be a TD well into their, into their 70s or not. And then that leaves a bit of a power vacuum there. So I think there are, there are some in Labour who believe it, that it ultimately that they will come home, as it were, that, you know, Roshan Shorthall splitting from Labour started this party and that the two of them will merge into a proper 
uh, Social Democrat centre left party that can actually challenge Sinn Féin but look that's something that, that is a long time off and I, I don't certainly don't see happening between now and the next election Alright Sean thank you indeed as always for joining us that's our political correspondent Sean Defoe just before we go thanks to Seamus and Dundalk who was uh, calling us about remote working and he says realistically if an employer doesn't want somebody working from home uh, what comeback do they have I have a son-in-law commutes to Dublin every day and didn't know himself working from home should be allowed to do that going forward thank you as I say Seamus that's our programme for today God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye The Michael Reed Show podcast tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM to contact us email now michael at lmfm.ie 